We're going to read the Bible now. We're reading from Luke chapter 18, verse 9, and that can be found on page 901 in your Bibles. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to the heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the one, than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. I'm going to continue reading from Luke 18. Starting at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible for man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, will fail to receive many times as much in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. Well, I just want to give you a bit of an update in the Glare household. Uh, last Sunday... We moved from becoming a family of five to a family of six. We got a puppy. 
as little Billy, as we've called him, and uh, my daughter Grace. Now, we begin the road of having a puppy. Some say it's like having a newborn. It's not. You don't get mastitis from having a puppy. It's completely different, right? But having a puppy, I've, I've had dogs before, right? And what we're beginning to do is teaching them how to sit, how to heal, how to come. Now, I know that when that first lesson, sitting, how to, teaching how to sit, is not a one-hit wonder, but it's going to be many, many lessons of sit, 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 until it sinks in for him. Now, as we've got this puppy, it's reminded me of what we've been doing in Luke's Gospel, because I feel like in the last 10 weeks, it's, Jesus has almost been teaching us like, like a little puppy, like the same lessons again and again and again, said in different ways, but the same lessons again and again and again. And as we come to the end of this 10 weeks of looking at what did Jesus actually say, what did he teach, it's almost going to feel like, have we heard this before? But we need to hear it again. So we're going to look at two obstacles today, and they may sound familiar, but two obstacles that are there for all of us to stop us wanting to have eternal life. That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at two obstacles that stop us from having eternal life. And Jesus highlights these two again and again and again because he wants you to have a real, genuine relationship with him. He wants you to come with him for all eternity in heaven. So I'm going to pray and then we'll dive in. Gracious Lord, we are simple people. Oh, we forget. We forget. Thank you that your word is patient with us that it says things we need to hear in different ways again and again and again. We thank you that your spirit is with us, opening our hearts to hear and receive and to not put aside what you have said. We ask as we hear these obstacles which you, Lord Jesus, highlight, that they would sink in and we we would not dismiss them. Amen. Um, When I was a young teenager, I remember my dad saying to me, James, If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he was to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Now, I was a bit freaked out about that question, right? It's a big question. So much so that I went that afternoon and I wrote down my answer. Because I thought in the moment, stand before Jesus, I get a bit of stage fright. And so I wrote it down. I actually had it in my pocket, ready to go. What would you write down? If you were to stand before God, so why should I let you, yes, you, into heaven? What would you write down? What, what would you say? Jesus tells a story, a parable, to highlight what is the right answer and what is the wrong. As we come to our first main obstacle. Turn with me to page 901. Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Jesus tells this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, it almost feels like an advertisement, you know, compare the pair, Mac versus PC, right? You can't get two different people, a Pharisee, one respected tax collector, one despised, one moral, one immoral, one who should be in the temple, one who's everyone thinking, why is he here? Then they pray. 
get a window into what they're thinking. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, because we know the, the end of this story, it's tempting to make fun of him right at this point, right? But have a look what he's praying. I mean, he begins by praying to God. That's a good start. But this guy, he hasn't robbed anyone. He hasn't committed anything illegal. He's been faithful to his wife. He is law, and not only that, he's generous. The average Aussie gives about 1% to 2% of the income away to charity. He gives 10%. At first glance, there's not a problem here, is there? I mean, this guy is a decent bloke. He's the kind of guy you would want as a neighbour. Then there's the Pharisee. But the tax, oh sorry, then the tax collector. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Tax collector, at a distance, not worthy, asked for mercy. Sounds about right, doesn't it? I mean, if anyone who's betrayed you, your family, your people, anyone who steals against you, your family, your people, is a scoundrel, isn't he? Should be ashamed of himself. With that in mind, Jesus says this. I tell you, verse 14, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Now, if that doesn't shake you, it's probably because you've heard this story too many times, right? What? The tax collector brought a smile to God's face, not the Pharisee? The tax collector was going to heaven, not the Pharisee? The tax collector was justified? But he's the scum of the earth, and this guy's a decent bloke. What's the go with that? Jesus gives us the answer. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus completely flips what we think will make us right with God. And you get this. If you get this, what Jesus is talking about, it will change your life forever. Because Jesus here is saying those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And the Pharisee here is exalting himself in two subtle ways, two subtle ways which you and I tend to do. Notice there he says, the Pharisee, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Then list them. That in the Pharisee's world, there's a bunch of people who he compares himself to. This group here. And he thinks, because I'm not like them, I'm pretty good. Now, you and I do this as well, right? There's a, there's a, peop, there's a group of people in our world. We don't say this out loud generally. But there's a people in our world who we think, well, at least I'm not like them. They might be the Muslim, the bogan, the bigot, the transsexual, the gambler, the anti-vaccinator, the climate change deniers, the heroin addicts, the racists, those who smell, those who dress weird, the bludgers, those who say H instead of H, right? There's a whole bunch of people in our world who we think, well, at least I'm not like them. And we hold them there to make ourselves feel good, don't we? 
But in the end, that's just pride. And funnily enough, we compare ourselves to those who we think we're better than. We never compare ourselves to those who are above us, do we? I'll give you an example. Have a look at this video on the screen. As you watch this person parallel park, how do you feel? You feel, you know what, I'm not that bad a driver. I mean, I would give it a, I would do a much better job. You watch the video like that and you think, you know what, I'm actually pretty good. When you compare yourself to that. But if you compare yourself to this driver, the next video. And all of a sudden you think, maybe I'm not that good. (laughs) God humbles those who exalt themselves. And at the end of the day, here's the thing. You're not going to be compared to the people that you have selected. Your life is going to be compared to the one God has selected. Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God. And if you compare your life to him, all of a sudden, things go quiet. The second way the Pharisee subtly exalts himself is in his achievements. Notice there, verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, those things are good things, right? And God loves when we do good things, brings a smile to his face. But what he doesn't love is when you do good things in order to try and impress him, earn his love by his affection. A guy called Simon, who's an atheist, said this. If God owns everything, then why would he need anything we have or do? And he's right. If you stand before God and say, you know what, God? I've done these good things. I've given here. I've worked hard. I've I've been nice. And I've done these things. So surely you're going to be impressed with me. Surely I'm going in. He's not going to be all that impressed. It's like going up to Bill Gates, the billionaire, and saying, Bill, I'm going to give you two bucks. And you give it to him and you think, he is going to never forget this. He is going to be so impressed by my generosity. He's a billionaire. He's not even going to... And this is what we do with God. We think, God, look what I've done. Hey, hey. But when you stand before God, right, and try and buy his love. He said, well, well, show me what you got, he'll say. Well, I gave money. You know what he'll say? Didn't I give you that money? Yeah, but I got a successful career. Didn't I give you that career? But, but I got a, a great family, but didn't I make that happen? Yeah, but I'm a good person. Didn't I give you the ability to be good? And in the end, if you try and buy God's love, in the end, you're just a re-gifter giving back to the original giver. A couple of Christmases ago, my mum gave a Christmas gift to my sister. And she opened it up and it was a bunch of T2T. She loved it. Oh, it was amazing. You know, and then she found a little card that said, Dear Sandy, which is my mum's name, thank you for speaking at the conference. And all of a sudden, it was a re-gift, exposed. And it got awkward. 
If you think that's awkward, you stand before God and say, God, look at all the good things I've done. I'm coming in, aren't I? God will say you are simply re-gifting back to what I gave you. And that will be awkward. So what does the tax collector do that's so different, that's so right? Notice there in verse 13, he doesn't compare himself to anyone. I mean, he could have. There's probably worse people in the world than him. But he says, I'm a sinner. Not they're the sinners, but I'm a sinner. He owns it. He knows he truly is. And he doesn't mention anything he's done. I mean, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I'm sure he was nice to his mum. But he doesn't mention anything. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That word mercy is a love not deserved, a favour that's not earned, a forgiveness that is freely given. Have mercy. He knows he's in need and he asks for mercy. Now, most people at this point think, hang on, isn't that a bit too easy? You just ask? You just ask and God lets you into heaven? That's that's too simple, isn't it? And that's often the critique of Christianity. It's too easy. Surely you have to do something. But friends, it's actually not too easy. It's too hard. Because to acknowledge that you can't earn it, you can't do anything, that you're a sinner, that you come with empty hands, that is too hard. As John Gerson said, if you want to become a Christian, all you need is need. All you need is nothing, and very few people have that. The title of this series, Count the Cost. So in following Jesus, there is a cost, right? And the cost is that admitting you have nothing to offer. And that is a hard thing to do. That is why many people don't become Christians. To say the words, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. One day, you're going to stand before God. And ask you, why should I let you into heaven? And if you say, because I've been good. You'll hear the words, but not good enough. You cannot buy your way in. You have to receive it. To do what this tax collector does, cry out for mercy. Admit that you are in need and know the forgiveness that awaits. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So that's the first big obstacle, right? Our moral performance keeps us from wanting to come in because we think we can buy our way in. But Jesus here mentions another obstacle, right? And this is with a rich uh, ruler. This is the second obstacle. Let me set the scene. Verse 18. There's a rich ruler who comes with asking our question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus' interaction with this man is a bit different, isn't it? It's a bit unusual because he doesn't answer the question. I mean, this guy is asking Jesus, what must I do in eternal life? And Jesus doesn't explain the gospel, doesn't say repent and believe. He doesn't even repeat the story he's just told. What's he do? Verse 19, he asks a question. Why do you call me good? Just as a side note, right? Jesus 
when confronting with people who ask questions and they've got an agenda, right? He doesn't often answer the question, but he asks another question, which is helpful for you in your family, your workplace. When people ask questions and you know they're actually not asking, they've just got a bit of agenda, right? Ask a question back. So when they say, you know, do you actually think I'm going to hell? Do you think marriage is a, between a man and a woman? Do you think God made the world? Be like Jesus and don't answer the question. Ask another question. Say, why does that bother you? Well, what, before I answer that, what do you think? How did you come to that conclusion, right? It's what Jesus does because what he, he's not interested in tripe answers or lip service. He's interested in where people are at. What are they thinking? Where's their heart at? And as he asks this man this question, it exposes this man thinks, I've obeyed all the commandments. I'm pretty good. Tick, tick, tick. Yep, obeyed most of them. But Jesus says something to this man that he's never said to anyone else. What does he say? Verse 22. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus wants this man to see that even though he thinks he's obeyed most of the commandments, there's one he hasn't, and that's the first. You shall have no other gods besides me. The God has to become first in your life. And for this man, God was not central. He worshipped his money. His first love was his wealth. And the idea of putting aside money, oh, no. What's his response, this rich ruler? He, when he heard this, he became very sad. Not refused. Not, this is ridiculous. Waste of time. He just became very sad. Because his wealth brought him happiness and God was a little add-on on the side. And Jesus says then, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The only time I've ever been on TV, I was riding a camel. It's not flattering footage in the slightest, right? But I've come up close with camels, and here's a picture of one on the screen, not the one I rode. But there's a camel. It's a big beast, right? This is a needle. I can see the eye of it. I don't think you can from where you're sitting. The idea of getting that beast through this eye is quite preposterous, isn't it? I wouldn't attempt it. But Jesus is saying this is more likely to happen than a rich man going to heaven. In other words, it is absolutely impossible. Is it any wonder why someone in the crowd said, well, who can they be saved? If that's not going to happen, how is a rich man going to... Who then can be saved, right? Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. That though it is beyond our logic, our abilities, it is not beyond God's. Because God is the one who can change a heart. We don't turn to God. He turns us so that we turn to him. He is the one who changes our priorities. In other words, it's like that word in the parable, mercy. 
God does it. We don't. See, Christianity, unlike every other religion, is all about what God has done, not what we do. But God the Father chooses you and wants you to bring you into his family. Where God the Son dies on that cross to save you and redeem you. God the Holy Spirit goes into you to make you aware that you have a need and repent and believe. God does it all. And if you want to see evidence of God doing the impossible, Peter pipes up. He says, verse 28, we have left all we had to follow you. And they had, right? For Jesus to become their first love, it means they've given up a whole bunch of things. And it was true for them. And as I look out here in this congregation, it's true for here too. We're following Jesus. When you put him at your center as your first love, that can come at great cost. Where God has done such a work in you that you want to worship Jesus, reorientate your life around him, change your identity around him, live for him, that those around you think that you're a fool. They're ashamed of you. They're embarrassed about you. And it's a cost. See, as I look out, there are some people here who's because you're a follower of Jesus, you're adult children, don't want anything to do with you. They think, do you believe the Bible? You're an idiot. And they've said that to you. There are some here who your parents, because of following Jesus, they, they're just disappointed in you. They're ashamed. There are some here who are Christians and same-sex attractive, and you want to obey God's word, and so you're seeking to do that as single and celibate. And there are people who mock you, and you find the hurt in that. And it is hard. There are some here who are Christians and single, and you've chosen not to marry or pursue a relationship with a non-Christian. And it, the prospect of that, of being alone, but also not even having your own biological children, is a deep cost. Some of you have given up career prospects because you don't want your job or your money to be first in your life, and you see your friends around you progress where you don't. Having Jesus as your first love can come at great cost, and many of you, as I look around this room, know it firsthand. And you ask that question, is it worth it? You know that Jesus doesn't ask you to do anything he himself has not already done. He denied himself completely in every way for the glory of God. And you can feel the hesitation in Peter's voice. We have left everything to follow you. Is it worth it? Jesus ends with these beautiful words. To you, truly I tell you, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. See, in following Jesus, sometimes your blood family give up on you. But Jesus is saying what you get in return is the family of God, which is so much better and greater. I was talking to a lady this week from our church who, when she became a Christian, her mum cried. I was embarrassed. 
And though her biological family has largely neglected her, don't get her, she said how precious it is to be part of a bigger family where she has brothers and sisters in Christ, new spiritual parents. She is holding on to this promise, and many are, you, many are too. Is it going to be perfect this side of heaven? No. But that phrase, in the age to come, eternal life, what is to come is so much greater. And more, the more it costs you now, the greater the reward will be where that future of a perfect community, the way life was supposed to be lived around God in a new heaven, a new earth, where you get an inheritance that never can perish, spoil, or fade, that is one offer. Now, Jesus doesn't pretend like the cost is not great. No, no, no. He gets it. But the cost is temporary, Jesus says, and the reward is forever. For some of you might think, you know what? The idea of my spouse, my family, relationship, my career not being number one, Jesus, it would just make me too sad. But a bit of a reality check, right? You know Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven. That marriage is temporary for this age and this age alone. When it comes to your biological family, that is not the family you're going to be known to be part of in the age to come. It's the family of Christ. When it comes to your career, most of your jobs, including mine, aren't going to be there in the age to come. Your career is temporary. So if you were to stand before Jesus, right, and you say, but Jesus, I couldn't give it up. Do you know how sad it would make me? Can you not hear Jesus saying, do you know how sad it made me that you weren't willing to give up something that's temporary as your first love? But for those who have followed Jesus, Jesus knows the cost that it's taken you. And one day you will stand before him covered in Jesus' love, confident of where you're going because you've cast your sin onto Jesus, asked for mercy, where he will look you in the eye knowing every decision you have made for him. And he will look at you and say, welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servant. And in that moment, you will realize it was worth it. You know why I teach Billy and my wife teach Billy to sit, to stay, to come? Because outside our place is a busy road. And I know Billy goes to that road, game over. So I, we teach him again and again and again because we want him to have a good life. Jesus warns of these two main things, your moral performance and relationships and riches. He warns you again and again and again because he does not want you to go to hell. He wants you to be with him forever. He wants that for you. To know that all you need is need, that Jesus has done it all, and that he is enough. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, your word is good, and we know that you love us. 
but it is hard to hear sometimes. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us now as we have just heard from your word in Luke 18, those warnings of what to do, what not to do, of what to be and what not to be. We ask, Lord, that we would see that we have nothing to offer but everything to receive. And we ask it would be like that tax collector asking for mercy. We ask, unlike the rich ruler, Lord, but we would be like the children who came to you, Lord Jesus, those little babies who had nothing to offer and cling to nothing, but completely dependent on you. We ask that we would be like them, that we would follow them as an example of great trust and faith as we put our trust in you, Lord knowing that everything we cling to now will go except you, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would bless us now. Amen.